The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. Praise His name from the earth, all you great sea creatures and whales and all the little creatures to the depths of the ocean, praise the name of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. All you hills and mountains, all you valleys and depths, all mountains and hills, all trees and cedars, fruit trees, all small creatures and flying birds, praise the name of the Lord, for he spoke and they were created. Praise his holy name among the assembly of the saints, for his name is great and unrivaled and unequal to any other. Praise his name, all you kings and rulers, all you nations and all you peoples and all you servants of the earth. Praise his holy name because his name alone is exalted among the earth. Praise his name in the assembly of his saints. The Bible says that the Lord takes delight in his people. That's you. Isn't that amazing? Praise the Lord because he takes delight in you, Refuge Church. He crowns the humble with salvation. Praise his name. Let us rejoice in our maker today. Let us rejoice and be glad in our King because he is sovereign over all. Let us praise him with dancing. Let us praise him with music. Let us praise him with the guitar. Let us praise him with the cello. Let us praise him with the piano and with the cajon. Let us praise him with the strings. Let us praise him with the clashing of cymbals. Let everything that has breath on this earth praise the holy name of the Lord. There are 17,000 groups of people, people groups, ethno-linguistic groups of people on this planet. And our God, our sovereign and holy God, deserves the praise from every single one of them. The glory of God among the nations is not just the reason for which we are sending a team to Turkey and Daniel to Basque. The glory of God among the nations, get this, hear this, the glory of God among the nations is the reason for which we have breath. Missions is not just a program or something we participate in, it is the very reason that we, that the church exists We have been given breath so that we can proclaim the goodness of God among the nations. And what I want to talk about today are the 7,000 people groups left that are yet to praise the name of the Lord. That haven't heard about the goodness of the Lord. Because nobody has told them about the goodness of the Lord. So I want to pray for us this morning and as I do... I want you to ask yourself a simple question. And I want you to take this question with you beyond today, beyond tomorrow, this week. Carry it with you 
continue to come back to this question. What role does God want me to have in reaching one or two or however many of those 7,000 people groups? We know that there is a role, whether you're five years old or 95 years old, you have a role in that. So what role does God want you to play in bringing one or two or some of those 7,000 people groups into the praise of our almighty God? As we'll come to see, God is always asking this question, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And so ask yourself that this morning, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Will I go? What role will will I play? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, would you do something magnificent among us this morning? Implant within us your passion for the nations, your jealousy for your praise, your longing to hear the praise of all those people groups that haven't heard about you yet. Would you do something new among us? Would you make us into a people so passionate about your praise and your name that we can't be silenced but we would be compelled to tell our neighbors and our friends and our family and our coworkers and maybe even pack our bags and move to proclaim your goodness. To mobilize us here in this moment that we as a church would be defined and known as the church that made a definite attempt to render the evangelization of the world an accomplished fact. And we want to do this all for your glory and all for your praise. Amen. As I was thinking about what to share with you this morning and praying, I was taken back to my time at Biola University where I studied. The seeds of God's heart for the nations were planted in me there. And so if you have your Bibles, join with me as we read Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. 
I want to very briefly this morning point out four things that happen when Isaiah sees the Lord. We're going to kind of brush through this really quickly. So if you have your notes, you can follow along with me there. When Isaiah sees the Lord, he sees God's holiness. Put yourself in this story. King Uzziah had just died. King Uzziah was in power for 52 years and it was likely the only king that, that Isaiah ever knew. The only king that a lot of that country ever knew. And so when King Uzziah died, the country was in turmoil. They were lost. They didn't know what to do. They were grieving. And so it was in this state of grief and mourning that Isaiah goes to the only place that he thinks he can find comfort in, the temple. And he walks in and he sees God high and lifted up, seated on a throne. Imagine that. His king just died and he was grieving the the death of his king. And what does he see? He sees our God on a throne. And the angels are dancing around him and calling to one another, screaming at one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And not even angels can look at him. They are covering their eyes with their wings. And they, at the sound of their voice, the dust is settling from the rafters and the doorposts of the temple are shaking. What a terrifying moment that is for Isaiah. He sees God's holiness high and lifted up. And when he sees his holiness, he sees himself for who he truly is. When Isaiah sees the Lord, he sees his own depravity. When Isaiah sees the Lord, he sees his own depravity. When Isaiah sees the Lord in that moment and he sees his glory and the train of his robe is filling the temple and angels are worshiping him and calling out his greatness and his goodness and his holiness, he doesn't say, wow, God, you're amazing. What does he do? Falls on his face and says, Woe is me, I am ruined. Not wow, woe. I'm a man of unclean lips. I am guilty. I am so far beneath you. I can't even be in your presence. Your holiness is too stunning for me. I can't be here. Woe is me. I am ruined. In other translations, it says, I am lost. I love that. When he sees God's holiness and he's in his holy presence, he recognizes how lost he is. We use that word lost a lot in the church. What does it mean to be lost? I'm going to my neighbor's house, he's lost. I'm gonna go to these people, they're lost people. What it means to be lost is to be separated from God, to be cast out of his good presence. Not even three chapters into this book, we see man taking things into their own hand and disobeying the simple instruction of God and taking the fruit from the tree and saying we're just gonna forge our own path. To be lost means to be cast out from God's favorable presence, Genesis 3. To be lost is to live alienated from God, Colossians 1. I want you guys to think about this and internalize it because that is what all of us at one time or perhaps now were or are. Lost, separated from God, alienated from God, Colossians 1. Separated from Christ, Ephesians 2. Cut off from God and condemned by God. 
Romans 5.12 says that from that one sin in the very beginning came condemnation for all mankind. All of us, you and me, lost. No one is righteous, not even one. No one who seeks good, not even one. All have turned away. No one who seeks good, not even one. Our throats are open graves. Romans 3, our tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on our lips. We are a depraved people. And so when Isaiah is in the temple and he sees the holiness of God and he sees his own depravity in that moment, what does he do? He confesses his depravity. He sees God's holiness. He sees himself for who he truly is. And he confesses. He says, Lord, I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips and I'm unworthy to be in your presence. I am guilty. I am guilty. I cannot be here. And then something amazing happens. What does God do? He sends one of the angels over to this cauldron of some kind, picks up a live coal with tongs, Bob Schaefer pointed out a really amazing fact. The reason that the angel perhaps couldn't touch the live coal was because they weren't worthy enough to touch the holiness of God either. But that's beside the point, maybe. I just think it's funny that this angel, this crazy being, has to go and get a live coal with with tongs. He flies over to Isaiah, and with the live coal, he touches Isaiah's lips. He says, see, With this coal, your sin has been removed and your guilt has been taken away. How is that possible? That this guilty person, this person full of depravity, this person that has been removed from God and cast out of his presence and full of unclean lips is declared and pronounced free of guilt in this moment. How? It's, it's insane to me that this person comes into the presence of God full of filth and is purified by God in that moment. How is that possible? Well, Isaiah 6 doesn't quite answer that question, so turn with me to Isaiah 53, and perhaps we'll find our answer. We're going to read the whole thing because it's amazing. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a, right, like a root out of a dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But, check this out, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. 
By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. This God who sits on the throne, who is sovereign over all, whose holiness is frightening, is one that goes to the altar of sacrifice and turns it into a place where man's guilt and sin is completely removed. How amazing is that? Think about this. Ten, no less than ten times in a span of three verses does this use uh, plural. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, the punishment that brought you peace was laid upon him. That's how Isaiah, in this moment, he's looking up and he sees his own depravity. He says, God, I am so unworthy to be here. I'm so sorry. I am a man of unclean lips. Please, I confess, God, I am a man of unclean spirit. And he says, it's okay. I've paid the price for your sin. You're purified and you're pure." That relationship that was once cut off and separated is now brought close and in unity. Isn't that amazing? Isaiah, when he sees God, he sees his holiness, he's confronted with his own depravity, confesses his own depravity, and I think it's amazing that up until the point in this story, Isaiah does not hear the voice of God. Not until Isaiah confesses and is reconciled to God and his sin is purified does he hear God. We could probably spend a long time delving into the details of what that means. But think about this. When Isaiah hears the Lord he is given an incredibly urgent mission. What does Isaiah hear God say? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? As I imagine this story, I think that God is always asking that question. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Who will tell them about my glory? Who will tell them about my goodness? Who will tell them that I have been pierced for their transgressions? Who will tell them that I was crushed for their iniquities? Who shall I send? But it wasn't until Isaiah was reconciled to God and confessed his depravity that he hear that question. Friends, we, when we see God for who he truly is, sovereign over everything and everyone, infinitely powerful, 
terrifyingly holy, incalculably merciful, and ever gracious, what kind of response does that elicit from us? What kind of response does that require from us as his people in his family? This God who sees us for who we really are, a depraved and sinful and lost, rebellious people full of unclean lips, impure eyes, impure motives, one who would be crushed for our iniquities, this God who would be pierced for our transgressions, not because of anything that is good in us, but simply because of how good he is? Is it just so that we could sit comfortably in a chair once a week and listen to a good speaker and then walk away feeling, oh, man, that was convicting? Or maybe the other side, oh, that kind of sucked. That was a waste of my time. Didn't really like that. I didn't click with it. Didn't like the music. Didn't like the worship. Didn't like the way that that guy looked. Didn't like the way that that guy smelled. Didn't want to sit next to him. Is that really the point? Is that why Jesus came to be pierced for you, to be pulverized for you, to be broken in two, for you to be whipped to the point of death for you? I don't think so. We have been given an incredibly urgent mission. We cannot just sit here while the mission of God continues. Why do we relegate the Christian life to saying a prayer whenever we want it, whenever we want help, or just coming and sitting in a comfortable pew and making friends with people that we like? This God, who was pierced for you, crushed for you, surely he warrants total abandonment of our lives, of our dreams, of our pursuits, our ambitions. Surely he, des- he deserves, surely he warrants total abandonment. God, what do you want me to do with my life? Not, I'm just going to live this way and see how God fits into that. God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live my life? How do you want us to use this church? How do you want us to use this group of people for your glory, for your praise among the nations? That is the movement of all scripture. God is jealous for his glory. God is jealous to hear his praise from all people and all nations, in all languages from all corners of the globe, from the darkest to the lightest, from the lowest to the highest, from the easiest to the hardest. God longs to hear the praise of all his people. Joining his family, being a part of his family, being a part of his church, does not ensure your comfort. Being a part of his church does not ensure your comfort and certainly does it not give you permission to sit idly by in a, in a pew while the mission continues, while the movement of God goes towards the unreached people groups of our planet. Joining his family means that you have been given an incredibly urgent mission. You've been enlisted into his service for his glory and for your joy. I want to show you guys a map. And this map 
shows us the progress of the gospel according to the people group. The green areas of the globe are places that have wide access to the gospel of Christ. It is a, it's considered a reached, now this is by people group. Of course, there are all nations in a, all around the world, scattered throughout around the world. But this is, when it, when it highlights Brazil, it, it's taking a percentage of the Portuguese people. And it's saying the Portuguese people are reached beyond 50% of the people professing faith. Okay? The green places are where the access to the gospel are rampant. You see billboards and you see posters and you see whatever and there's churches and there are a lot of people, Christian workers, pastors that are preaching the good news in those places. Alternatively, the red places along on, on that map are places in our world that are considered unreached by the gospel of Christ. The people by percentage are less than 2% Christian. There is little, if any, access to the gospel, and that's an important differentiation, access to the gospel. Just, I mean, even if somebody wanted to come to faith, in many cases they would not be able to, perhaps, because nobody is there to speak, to share them, to share with them, to disciple them. These are places that are unreached by the gospel. There's very little church presence there. In a lot of cases, there is no Bible translated into their language. Just a a quick community poll. What percentage would you say of all missionaries sent from all nations, not just America, go to places that are green? 10%, 15%, 20%, 30%, 40%, 50%, 97 out of every 100 people who are mobilized and sent to the nations go to, to places that are already reached places. They already have what's considered a self propagating church meaning Portuguese people are, pre- are planting Portuguese churches in the Portuguese language. Now, what I do not want you to misunderstand here is that there, across this globe, there is tremendous need. Okay? Don't hear me saying that it's wrong to go anywhere that is green. Please. What I'm saying is that the mission of God all throughout scripture from the very beginning is, I mean, it's towards those who have not yet heard. And so the fact and the reality that less than one, to be precise, 0.03% of all missionaries that are sent overseas go towards red places, I think that's a little bit imbalanced. we have been given an incredibly urgent mission. When I was at Biola University, one of my professors, just in this phrase, changed my life. He walked over here to this map, and he said, oh, think about this. There are seven billion people scattered throughout these countries. 
all along this beautiful world that God created. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't this amazing? Look at this thing that God created here. All these billions of people who've been created in the image of God, just like you. These people, they've been born. They will live their entire life and they will die and they will not once have an opportunity to respond to the grace of God because nobody told them about it. When I heard that, my life was wrecked. I thought, man, I haven't been a Christian for that long. At the time, I would only been a Christian for two years. I was thinking, okay, I've been to like four Easter services. I've heard the gospel at least four times. Three billion people have been born. They will live their entire life and they will die and they will not once have an opportunity to respond to the gospel of Christ because nobody has taken it upon themselves to pack up their bags, count the costs and say, God is worth it and I'm going to go and tell them about it. God has given us a mandate that could not be clearer. Go into all the nations, Jesus says, and preach the gospel, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And surely I am going to be with you all the way into the very end. The movement of scripture all the way from the beginning the blessing of Abraham, go and tell this people, I'm going to make you a blessing to all nations. And in the very end, his seed, the Abraham seed, is going to be redeemed and there's going to be people from every tongue and every nation and every people group praising the name of the Lord. And the gospel says that the, the gospel will be preached to every people and then the end will come. This is the movement of all scripture. God is jealous for his own glory. Who shall I send? Who will go for us? There are places that yet have yet to hear. The mission is still before us. The opportunity is vast. The need is urgent. If we lived in a world where everybody knew the the name of Jesus, I'd say, yeah, man, let's have fun. Sit in our chairs and just get to know each other. But it's not. There are three billion people who have yet to hear. The mandate is clear. The mission is clear. The objective is clear. Go to the all nations, preach the gospel to people who've never heard. There's the people who've never heard. North Africa, from Morocco, all the way down to Egypt, and then down to Yemen, and Somalia, and Oman, and Saudi Arabia, and Turkey, and the, the Afghanistan, and Pakistan, and all these amazing, beautiful, they have delicious food, <laughs> India, Spain. Let's go. C.T. Studd was a famous missionary who answered that question, whom shall I send, who will go, by responding, me. He wrote this, and I'd like to read it to you now. 
It's not an easy word, but perhaps most needed. He said this, believing that further delay would be sinful. Some of God's insignificance and nobody's in particular, that's you and me, but trusting in our omnipotent God have decided upon some simple, certain lines. According to the book of God, to make a definite attempt to render the evangelization of the world an accomplished fact. I'll read that sentence one more time. The people of God, may it be known of us, to make a definite attempt to render the evangelization of the world an accomplished fact of which now it is not. Too long have we been waiting for one another to begin. The, way, the time for waiting is past. The hour of God has struck. In God's holy name, let us, his church, arise and build. We will not build on the sand, but on the bedrock of the sayings of Christ. And the gates and minions of hell shall not prevail against us. Should such men as we fear know before the whole world, no, before the sleepy, before the lukewarm, before the faithless, namby-pamby Christian world, we will dare to trust our God. We will venture our all for him. We will live and we will die for him and we will do it with his joy, unspeakable, singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting in our God than live a million years trusting in man. And when we come to this position, the battle is already won. And the, the end of the glorious campaign in sight, then we will have real holiness. Not the sickly stuff of talk and dainty words and pretty thoughts. We will have real holiness. One of daring faith and works for Jesus Christ. So Refuge Church, as I leave you this morning, I want to leave you with three challenges, three thoughts, and we will not have time to unpack every single one of them. So what I want you to do is I want you to write them down, and I want you to take them with you. I want you to take them with you to process and take them to prayer. As you continually ask yourself, what role do you play in the evangelization of every 7,000 groups of people that live mostly in this red section? What role do you have? Whether you're 95 or you're 5, what role do you have? Three thoughts. God has not called you to a comfortable life, but one of surrender and abandonment for the sake of his glory among the nations. God has not called you to a comfortable life, but one of surrender and abandonment for the sake of his glory among the nations. Secondly, God has not called you to a safe life, but one of faith that radically trusts 
his sustaining power and mercy. God has not called you to a safe life, but one of faith that trusts radically his sustaining power and mercy. And finally, God has not called you to a privatized faith, but one that selflessly gives yours away to make his name great among the nations. God has not called you to a privatized faith, but one that selflessly gives yours away to make his name great among the nations. All three of these statements are in stark contrast to what our culture would want you to believe. And sometimes the church in America. We have been called to the nations to live and breathe the praise of God, to enjoy God and to invite others into that enjoyment. Start here. There are a lot of people in Bremerton, Bremerton that need to know Jesus. There are a lot of people in Kitsap County that need to know Jesus. There are droves of people in Washington State. There are thousands of people upon thousands of people in America that need to know Jesus. There are millions of people that need to know Jesus in America. There are billions of people that need to know Jesus among the nations. And if you are not playing a part in that, then there's something wrong with your faith. So, friends, as we encounter God in his holiness and his sovereignty, and as we confront our depravity, and as we go to him in continual confession, and hear him asking constantly, continually, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Will you go? Will you go? Will you go? Will you go? I pray that as we hear him say that and ask that of us, I want to urge us not to be content in this church and in that chair with the sickly stuff of talk and dainty words and pretty thoughts. Let us, Refuge Church, dare to trust our God. Let us venture and abandon our all for him. Let us live and let us die for him And let us do so with his unspeakable joy singing aloud in our hearts for his praise and for his glory. Let us, Refuge Church, let us please make a definite attempt to render the evangelization of the world an accomplished fact. May that be what defines us. That man, when they see the refuge church and they remember the refuge church, they're like, yeah, those people were on fire for the glory of God among the nations. They sent out so many people to the nations. They sent their best people to the nations. Can't even believe it. Let's pray.